Our reading tonight comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 through 3, 6. In the Church Bibles, page 1160, large print 1755. Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity, as those sent from God. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but but our, but our competence comes from God. He has made our competent, he has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Praise be to God. Thanks, Jackie. Good evening, everybody. Well, it's been, um, just over a month now since Liz Truss became Prime Minister of our country. And during that time, we've entered an economic and political crisis, which has left her critics asking the question, is she equal to such a task? I'm sure it's a question we have all asked of ourselves at um, some point during our life as we face the different challenges of life, as we've maybe gone off to, to university, as we've started a new job, as we become maybe a parent, or as we heard from Caroline earlier, maybe as we've taken on a new role in church life. Am I equal to such a task? As Christians, we know that we have been saved by by God's grace and not by our works. But we also recognize we have a responsibility, we have a desire to to serve him. What exactly is our task? And uh, What if we don't feel equal to that task? Well, that's the question Paul raises in this passage with reference to the gospel ministry. Who is equal to such a task? And the answer, of course, is in ourselves, none of us. But in Christ, each one of us is equal to the task. Paul finishes um, in uh, verse 5 of chapter 3 with that wonderful reassurance Our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. So I hope this passage this evening will provide you with a great reassurance that as God calls you to serve him, he will equip you and he will make you competent for the task. 
Let's just remind ourselves of um, the context of this passage. So far in this letter, Paul's been very honest with the, the Corinthians about how he's feeling. Last week we read in verse 4 of uh, chapter 2 these words of, of Paul. I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. Such is the pain that he's feeling about the Corinthians that it is affecting all that he does. And so as we come on to verse 12 in the passage that Jackie read for us, we, we read these words. He says, Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. And Titus, um, if you recall, had gone on to, to Corinth. And Paul was desperately waiting for news from Titus. To how had the Corinthians received that letter that he'd sent to them? Would they reject Paul's rebuke, allow that offense to go unpunished, which would in turn lead them further away from God? Or would they address his concerns? Would they act in a way which brings them closer to the Lord? which is Paul's goal for them, or would they go astray? Until he hears from Titus, Paul has no peace of mind. And even though the Lord has opened a door for him to to preach the gospel, he's not able to take advantage of it. And it emphasizes just how important healthy Christian relationships are in the church. Not only do they affect our state of mind, they affect our ministry. And that's why the devil will try and attack us in this way. We don't hear anything from Titus until chapter 7 of, uh, of this letter. And in the intervening chapters, Paul goes on to describe uh, Christian ministry. Up to now, his account has been full of some of the other challenges. And so almost to provide some sort of counterbalance, that he changes the focus to thank God for his victory in verse 14. He says, but thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. Christ is triumphant. He is victorious. And although ministry may be hard, we shouldn't forget that the ultimate victory, the victory over sin and death and Satan has been won. We are ministering as those who are on the winning side. It's like an encouragement to get involved in in ministry. But how does Paul reassure the, the Corinthians then and us today that we are equal to that task? But before we come on to that, what actually is the task? Well, let's have a, have a look at it. Our task, quite simply, is to proclaim Christ. That image of a triumphal procession that Paul uses here in verse 14 comes from a Roman general leading his, his army in a victory parade through the streets of Rome, exhibiting the spoils and the captives from war. And that Greek phrase is actually quite difficult to translate. In the NIV here, it's just translated as God leading us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. The captive probably referring to the fact that uh, God has conquered Paul and now leads him in his triumphal procession. In the same way that we, are, as captives, we are willing slaves to Christ if we are, are Christians. Other commentators think the emphasis is more on the, the triumphal procession that we are as victorious soldiers are a part of. 
which I think is probably more likely when we see what comes next, because Paul writes that God uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. That aroma refers to the, the incense that was burned to the gods in a procession that they wafted over the spectators as well as those in the procession. And he continues, For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. If you think of a victory procession, if you're one of the victorious soldiers returning from war, then you will associate that aroma with victory. Yes, a sweet smell. If, on the other hand, you are one of those who've been brought home as a captive, you're facing imprisonment, maybe you're even facing death, then that smell to you is going to be a stench. It's a smell of defeat. It's the same smell, but it has different associations. It triggers a different response. I wonder what smells for you trigger certain memories, either, either positive or, or negative. So what's the aroma that Paul is referring to? Well, God, we are told, uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him, that is Christ, everywhere. To spread the aroma of the knowledge of Christ is to spread the gospel, to tell people about Jesus. That's the task we have all been given as Christians. And as we do that, as we live out the the difference that the gospel has made to us, then we become that aroma. And just as you can't separate an aroma from the thing that produces the smell, neither can you separate the gospel from Christians. People associate us with, with Jesus. And depending on people's reaction to, to Jesus, that can be a good thing or a bad thing. To those who respond positively, who, who are open to the gospel, who are intrigued about Jesus, they, they want to know more about him, we're an aroma that brings life. They want to sniff us out like a, a dog that's got a, got a scent. But to those who reject the gospel, they don't want anything to do with Jesus. Then we are an aroma that brings death. Because ultimately if somebody rejects the gospel, then they will face hell. And the sad thing in that situation is that people may not want to surround them. Who remind them of the fact uh, of where they're going. And they may not even believe in hell, that there is a hell. But if they're leading a lifestyle they feel guilty about, um, our presence may make them feel uncomfortable. They may distance themselves from us. What do we do in that situation? Well, what we can't do is change the aroma of Christ. We can't change the message of the gospel to, to somehow make it more popular, which is what some Christians have tried to do. We can't change the way we behave. We still behave as God wants us to behave. We can still show love and respect to those who have rejected us. But their response to the gospel is not in our control, as we will see. God is the one who determines the aroma. He's the one who's given us the good news. That's the good news in which we rejoice. And our task, our responsibility, is to please him. As Paul says in verse 17, 
Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. We are those who are in Christ, who, who belong to Christ, who speak before God. We are accountable to him. We speak with sincerity. We don't try and manipulate. We don't distort the message. We've been sent from God, and so we remain faithful to him. We remain faithful to his ministry. It's his ministry. It's not ours. If we change our message, then we lose the smell. We no longer are a pleasing aroma to God. The task is the same for each of us. It is to, to proclaim Jesus. And what we need to discern is, uh, well, who is it to whom God wants us to proclaim Christ? And that will vary according to our different situations, our different personalities as well. Well, having described the task, Paul poses the, the rhetorical question that the Corinthians have been asking, and who is equal to such a task? Who is equal to such a task? Who is going to be effective? Who is going to produce results? Who should they be trusting? The great reassurance, as Paul goes on to explain, is that God makes us equal to the task. The normal way of demonstrating one's credentials in those days would have been to produce a letter of recommendation, or a reference, as we might say. And clearly some of the Corinthians have criticized Paul for not producing such a thing, unlike some of the other teachers. So Paul asks them the question, do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? It's a pretty absurd request, he's implying. After all, he was the apostle who founded the church in Corinth in the first place. Paul goes on to say, you yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. What he's saying is that the result of Christian ministry is a changed life. Someone who is following idols has turned to the living God. Someone who is walking in the darkness has come into the light. Someone who was dead is now alive in Christ. That's salvation here at LCBC, isn't it? Lives changed by Christ. And if as a result of the preaching of the gospel, people have turned to Christ and had their lives changed by him, then what more do you need, he's asking them. Paul is saying to the Corinthians that everyone who, who knows you, who's seen the change in you, has read you as our letter of recommendation. You are that letter. Many people testify that when they came to, to faith, they saw the change in someone close to them. Um, you can agree uh, whether or not you think the gospel is true, but you can't, you can't not agree with the, the change that's taken place in somebody. That's what caused Lee Strobel, uh, the author of The Case for Christ and, and the sequels to that, to, to start his investigation into the truth of Christianity. He saw the change in his wife when she became 
a Christian. And so he set out as an investigative journalist to prove that Christianity was false. But to his surprise, he became convicted of the truth. What Paul is doing is not claiming any sense of credit for the change in the Corinthians. He's not boasting of his or his colleagues' achievements. He's saying your conversion may have been a result of our ministry, but we are just ministers. We are just servants of God. You are a letter from Christ. You are written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. It's the spirit of the living God who saved you. He's the one who's given you new life. That is what he does. He breathes new life into to dead souls. And he does that, it says here, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. What's he referring to, to there? Well, the tablets of stone are a reference to the Ten Commandments, which were engraved on tablets of stone, which formed part of the, the Old Covenant. A covenant establishes a, a relationship between two parties. Under the Old Covenant, after God had rescued the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, he promised to, to love them as his people. And they promised to worship him and obey him as their God. And God gave them the Ten Commandments as a, a foundation for that relationship. So that they would know how to live lives that, that pleased him. All the commandments were impossible to keep perfectly. And they revealed just how far short God's people were falling from his perfect standards. And that is what we call sin, isn't it? The commandments therefore demonstrated to his people just how much they needed a saviour. One who would be able to keep those commandments perfectly. One who would be willing to take the punishment that we deserve for our failure to keep those commandments. And that's what's known as the, the new covenant, a relationship based not on the ability of the people to keep God's laws, but based on God's grace, his undeserved loving kindness. We read of this covenant in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, where God says this, this is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. The basis of the covenant is still God's promise that uh, I will be their God and they will be my people. But now the reason that they will be able to know him is because God will remove the barrier of our sin. God will forgive us. God will remember our sins no more because Jesus will take the punishment for them. The reason they will be able to obey him was because the Holy Spirit will write his law on their hearts, which means he will give them, he will give us a new inner desire to, to know God to obey God, a new ability, a new strength to resist temptation. If we are Christians, then we have experienced the, the joy that such a transformation brings to our own lives. The fact that we're forgiven, the fact that uh, we now live for Christ, having been saved. 
And if we know that for ourselves, then we want others to know that too, don't we? We want to see them experience that same joy. And so the task of proclaiming the gospel, of proclaiming Christ, is not some sort of a duty we have to perform to maybe confirm that we are saved. No, it's a new desire that the Spirit has put within us, a new compassion for those who are lost, those who are without Jesus. The trouble is we often, I think, think that we are the ones who have to change people. It's our responsibility to change people. And when we think like that, we, we beat ourselves up when our, when our friends, when our family don't accept Jesus. We start wrestling with things. If only I'd taken that opportunity to speak about Jesus, then it would be different now. It's all my fault. All that conversation just started so well, and then we, we, went, we went off on a tangent. I didn't get to Jesus. Maybe if I'd only been a better parent, better husband, better wife. If only my Christian lifestyle was more attractive and consistent. When we realize it's only the, the Holy Spirit who can change lives, then although we have the same concern for those who are lost, we can spend more time praying for him to change people, to produce the results, rather than beating ourselves up for our failures. Okay, so the Holy Spirit produces results, but where can I get the, the confidence to, to proclaim Christ, to, to serve him, to be used by him? Where does Paul get it from? Well, verse 4 says, Such confidence we have through Christ before God. That comes later. Paul is not some sort of super apostle. He's a, he's a human being, just like you and me. He's aware of his own weakness. But as God says to him later in this letter, he says, My power is made perfect in weakness. It's when we acknowledge our weakness and our dependence on God that he's able to use us for his glory. If we think any success in our personal evangelism or our corporate evangelism this is somehow down to us, then we're not going to see results because God is concerned for his glory, not our glory. And the way in which we acknowledge our weakness, our dependence on God, is through prayer. In prayer, we're able to ask God to, to equip us for the task that he has given us. We're able to ask him to reveal his power through us. Verse 5 says, Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And that word competent is the same word used in the question back in verse 16. Who is equal to such a task? Who is competent for such a task? Who is capable? Who is qualified for such a task? In ourselves, none of us. But in Christ, all of us. With him, all things are possible. We read in the gospel about the many lives that, that Jesus changed through his teaching, through his miracles. When he ascended to heaven, he sent his spirit to give his disciples the power to continue his work. 
Who does God want you to speak to about Jesus? Don't worry how far they may appear to be from Jesus right now. Don't worry that you you don't know what to say. Ask God to make his power perfect in your weakness. I'm going to watch a short uh, video now to finish of uh, a testimony to the life of Brother Andrew, um, who died two weeks ago. He did not, I don't know how much you know of his story, he didn't have a particularly remarkable background. He was the, uh, the fourth of six children born to a poor Dutch blacksmith and an invalid mother. He joined the, the Dutch army to, to go and fight in the Indonesian revolution and suffered quite severe emotional trauma um, after being involved in the, the massacre of Indonesian villages. He was then shot through the, the ankle and it was during his rehab that um, he began reading the Bible, the Bible that his mum gave him. And that's when he started to see who Jesus was and eventually gave his life to Christ. During his life, as you may know, he achieved amazing things for for the Lord because he acknowledged that although he himself was not equal to the task, his confidence and his competence came from God.